Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our assistant pastor, Jeff Buck. Hi there, I'm Pastor Jeff Buck. I'm substituting for our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge, for Tuesday night Bible study. So happy to have you along at whatever time you happen to be watching this. We're going to be in the third chapter of Colossians. If you've been following along, I covered the last two chapters of Colossians and now come to the fabulous third chapter. Uh, Just a note, I, at our own church here on the 25th of July, I went through the first four verses in detail. And so I'm going to go a little bit after giving you a summary of that uh, briefly through the four verses, but then go through all 25 verses of Colossians 3. Colossians is a fabulous book, as I've mentioned the previous two weeks, written in prison at about 60 AD at a time that Paul was unsure of what his future would be and so put down some of his finest thoughts there in a Roman prison cell. These first four verses are rather famous and they're classic. Colossians 3.1 If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Then he says, why? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So when Christ, our life appears, you will appear with him in glory. If you've been raised with Christ and the moment you bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and a new work began in you, a resurrection life began flowing through your veins. And the idea is, it says in verse one, seek the things that are above. Verse two, set your mind on the things that are above. I think it's one of the great disciplines of the Christian life is to tame our minds. What we think about, what we seek And it's supposed to be the things above. We haven't been to that place yet. We've not been in the kingdom of heaven, but we are to seek the things there. And I like the word things used twice. Things, well, it connotes something real. Heaven is real. The throne of God and angels, they are real. And so we are encouraged and exhorted. Look up and concentrate and set your mind on the things above. Why? For you have died. Again, the moment that you bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus, things began dying in you. Things that you once were enamored of and you chased with all your might begin to fall away because your old Adamic nature is joined with Christ who carried it to the cross. And there's a death that works inside you. And then a corresponding life as you're joined to the resurrection of Christ. And I love that fourth verse, when Christ, our life appears. Christ is just not where we go for an emergency generator source. Christ is our life. We gave our old lives away. We put aside all of our plans and thoughts and druthers, so to speak, 
so that we could be joined with Christ and serve God. So he is our life. Every morning when you wake up, you're climbing into the life that is flowing out of you and to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is our life. And at the rapture, to which he refers in that fourth verse, the saints who are already gone home to heaven actually appear with Christ in the sky when the church on earth is carried away. And so one way or another, you will appear with him in glory. Uh, It's a fabulous set of verses. I referenced also uh, Philippians 3, where our citizenship is in heaven. And to have the idea that my passport really is one from heaven. That's my true citizenship. And I mentioned Psalm 73, which again speaks of a person whose eyes are on heaven. Psalm 73, 25, whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on the earth. So just in taking those four verses, and I'll just run through it very quickly, I talked about seven of the things that come to us from heaven. Answers come from heaven. Direction for our lives come from heaven. An overall three sense of destiny comes to us from God, as does number four, the knowledge that we have a spot, an eternal home in heaven That comes from heaven. Number five, comfort comes from God. Number six, 1 Peter 4, 11, we serve with the strength, strength that comes from God. And finally, security, where Jesus said in Luke 21, 38, look up for your redemption draws nigh. So I see in those four verses, the the basic direction, look up, keep seeking, eyes on heaven, you have died, and now Christ is your life. So then he gets down to business, having established this heavenly connection. And in verses 5 through 11, he gets very specific about some of the things that you're supposed to get rid of. And we have a responsibility to cooperate with the cleansing power of the Holy Spirit in Six different sins of action he's going to talk about. And then another six things that are largely of attitude. Pretty gnarly list. Let's take a look. In verse 5, he says, put to death in verse 6. He says, verse 5, and then in verse 9, he says, put off. Put to death, put off. Like you're taking off a garment, you have to get rid of these things. Put off, therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. And that's the first thing he says. Earthly things, they have to go away. Here are some earthly things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Those six things. And then then he ventures to say, on account of these, verse 6, On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. We don't hear enough about the wrath of God. The absolute anger, passionate rage of God against sin. If you are unfamiliar with that concept, all you've got to do is go to the book of Revelation 
and the wrath of God is outlined in three successive phases in uh, chapters 4 through 18. There are a series of seals, trumpets, and bowls, all of which are pouring out on the earth in, in successively more horrendous wrath, the wrath of God. And so the things that he now mentions here, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, and idolatry are reasons for God to pour out wrath. We don't want any part of that. So let's take a look at these. Sexual immorality. Interesting, that's number one. Uh, the Greek word porneon, porneon uh, refers to actually any kind of illicit sex. Um, today, it, we know a lot about pornography. We know about uh, pornographic films. And that would be included in this. It's objectifying women and uh, creating sexual content just to, for the stimulation of a person. And um, it's, it's interesting, in my premarital counseling ministry over, say, the last 10 years, very, very few of the people that I have in this particular assignment and back into when I was in Fort Lauderdale, uh, so many of these couples are already in a sexual relationship. The, the, the majority, obviously not all. And it's a sign of our times that people find themselves unable to maintain their virginity until that marriage covenant. Also finding themselves in all kinds of sexual content. Christianity Today, which is a very, uh, very honest magazine, several years back in a uh, survey of their readership, discovered 34% of their, their male readers were addicted to pornography. Even more surprising, 17% of the women were addicted to pornography. And that's the first thing he talks about here is sexual immorality. You put it right next to the next word, which is impurity. It's a compound Greek word, akatharos, Catharos, from which we get the word catheter or a cathartic experience, refers to something that is running pure and clean. And it has a negative prefix, awe, in front of it, something that is running and is not clean and pure. Impurity, we have all experienced it, we've all walked in it, is the second thing that he says, this cannot be having a, an intentional repetitive impurity and something he simply tells us put it to death it's an earthly thing that that binds you to the elemental spirits of this world that we saw last week immorality impurity and, and by the way i want to stop and say everyone longs to be pure all of us wish that we could live a fully pure life it's interesting in, in Titus chapter 1, he says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to the impure and defiled, all things are impure. Simply meaning that if you allow impurity into your life, it, it, it attracts more. If you're able, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to put away impurity and find yourself living, maybe not a, a perfect life, but a life that is in your conscience, you're walking in purity, you attract more purity and more pure things to your life. 
immorality, impurity. And then the, the third word here is simply the word passion, pathos. We've heard about uh, pathos, about uh, emotional things. It basically means a person who's run by emotions. And you, you get up someday and I just don't feel like I want to be married. Um, I, just, I just don't feel like I, I want to be so disciplined. I, I just don't want to eat right, whatever it might be, because of our emotions. And man, I'm like you. I have emotions. I have those days I'm up, those days I'm down. But especially as an adult, especially as a husband, especially as a father and grandfather, I just can't live solely by what I feel. I feel what I feel, but I can't be guided by what I feel. Run by emotions. That's the third thing that he calls here. It's earthly. And then number four, he says evil desire. It's a... It's an interesting phrase in Greek. I can't even pronounce the words, but it basically means evil desires. There's just no other way to translate it. We all sometimes sitting around begin to just to meditate or think or dream or wonder. And you can then find yourself thinking about things that you really shouldn't be thinking about. And the, and the hook comes by and you have to decide, man, am I going to bite that or not? Am I going to go that way or not? Uh, he doesn't really particularly define it, but he simply says desires that are evil. We all know what desires are, and sometimes they go bad, evil desires. Or number five, I'm sure none of you have ever experienced this, it's called covetousness, which is excessive, extreme desire for something that belongs to someone else. Covetousness. It's uh, the opposite of contentment. It's wanting, instead of wanting what you have, that's contentment. It's wanting what you don't have. And it leads, he says, a covetousness, and then the sixth word, which is idolatry. If you give in to wanting what other people have, you begin worshiping the things that you don't have and wish you did. I don't want to get in trouble by mentioning this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, Car Week here in Monterey, California is coming up soon. And it's a time that does raise a lot of money for charity. But it's a time that people from all over the world come and they bring their cars, some of them to be sold, but a lot of them just to be shown off. I had a friend who worked Car Week and talked about the guy from Germany that put his car in a transport, paid $10,000 to ship it over here to Monterey for a week so people could ogle it, and then $10,000 to, to send it back. I knew of a guy that lived in Carmel Valley here that kept an apartment with a garage here and was only here one week a year to get his car out of the garage and let it be seen in car week. And man, then when you you go downtown and you look at all these cars and you think, man, I, I have a junk heap compared to this. And you might get covetous. The world record for a car being auctioned was a 1962 Ferrari 250 GTO. 2018 Sotheby's auction, $48.4 million. So I don't know the person that bought that. I wasn't at that auction, 
But I would say you'd be in danger if you paid that for a car of idolatry. It's a car. It gets you from here to there. And, and I guess gets, gets you some great looks when people see you driving something and they know what it means. But beware of the covetousness, which is idolatry. And then, as, as the scripture says, God pours out his wrath on those kind of things. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, idolatry. And he says, put them to death. That simply means take evasive action. Do whatever you have to do to climb out of those pits for the wrath of God comes on those. Then we, he's not done. He says in verse 7, now in these you too once walked when you were living in them. And we've all lived in these things. None of us can look at someone else and, and look down our nose and say, man, you're such a sinner. Because we all have struggled with these things. In verse 8, though, but now you must put them all away. And here again are another six words. The, the previous six, as I said, were actions. These are largely attitude things. He says, but now you must put them all away. And I always, when I quote this verse and I'm, I work on my own issues as I quote this verse, I remind myself, this is written to Christians. This is written to a, a very fine church, very fine people of the church, written to Christians. And so he's, he's talking Turkey to the people of God. Put them all away. Anger wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And the sixth one is, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have, there's the word, put off the old man with its practices. These things relate to the old part of us, which technically died with Christ, and we keep down through the Christian disciplines and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Look at these things. First, he mentions putting away anger and wrath. I've studied those two words because I had a moment in my life when I was so angry that I uh, threw something out the car door and almost hit one of my kids in the head. And I, and I realized, this was many years ago, you have a problem. You are upset. You are... And I heard in my heart, heard in my mind, this scripture here, or actually, well, it was actually a similar one in Psalm 37, verse 8. And I heard these words in my heart as I'm standing there shaking with anger, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. I had never studied anger and wrath, but the next two months, I looked up every verse I could find on it, and I discovered that anger and wrath are very different things. Anger is like a temper tantrum. It's like a, a fit where somebody cuts in front of you and you're just you're really upset about it and, and then you, you calm down and, and you, you drive off. But wrath, the Greek word orge, it's the word that we saw up above about the wrath of God. It's a deep, inner, volcanic rage. Speaking to Christians, he says, put off anger, which is temporary, but that wrath, that's that volcanic rage. 
that may have come from uh, a divorce, it may have come from molestation as a child. Uh, you, you, you see so often that when children are treated incorrectly and they, you know, they wind up in foster care, for example, that there's an anger and a rage inside them that uh, is understandable. Oftentimes the abuse and neglect produce that. But God says, put that away. And, and ask for God's help as I did. Look up every verse you can on anger and wrath and ask the Lord to remove that from you because it then leads to the third thing, which is malice. Anger, wrath, malice. Malice, by definition, is the desire to inflict injury, harm, or suffering on another person. If you have this anger simmering in you, you begin to desire to intentionally even if it's just in your mind, hurt other people. And that's just not our job. Our, our job is not to correct other people. Our job is to put away these things ourselves, not to desire to hurt anybody else. How many people I have met that are so angry with, with an ex-husband or wife or a child that's been in rebellion or whatever it might be, and they just they have this desire for revenge and uh, to inflict. You just can't do that. Anger, wrath, and malice bring then the word slander. That is a kind of speech where you intend to defame another person's reputation uh, in, intentionally, to... Um, to hurt people through your words. It's actually the Greek word blasphemia, which could be translated cursing, but in this case, it's meaning detractor. It's amazing, and I've read this from the, the, the mid-1700s when our nation was born up until now, to see the slander that occurs in politics. It is incredible what the different parties say about one another, or people, of course, say about others, and uh, we don't realize that it's slander. It's, uh, it's, it's trying to um, pull down another's good name. Anger, wrath, malice, slander. And then it says here, obscene talk or abusive speech, another translation says. It's fascinating, this word obscene talk. It actually comes from a, a word in the original, which means something that is disfigured and then causes shame. It would be like if you had a limb that was, was curled up or you had a, some kind of physical disfigurement and it causes you shame. And so people see that and so they shame you or they bully you. That, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about not just the obscenities that we might speak where we curse out God, but it actually is referring to shaming, bullying, and um, hurting people like that. And so much of this, you can see, are attitudes that, that come out the mouth. And then he says, I've seen talk from your mouth. And then the, the next thing is, do not lie to one another. You know, the thing about lying is, lying is self-protection. You're, you're in a situation where you are confronted and your fleshly re resolve might be, I, how am I going to wiggle out of this? 
and it's self-protection. See, it's an attitude. But in the body of Christ, we're not here to protect ourselves. We're here to try to walk in transparency. Therefore, we don't lie about other people to bring ourselves up. And it's, it's fascinating. That's the, that's the last thing here in this series of, of attitudes. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene or abusive speech, and then lying. And it, it is interesting, as uh, Pastor Manny at our church, the last Sunday where I preached on Colossians 3, 1, and 4, he read from Revelation 21 about the coming heavenly kingdom, but also the lake of fire, the the punishment that we call hell. And it's interesting, the first people in the lake of fire in Revelation 21, 8 were the cowardly, but the last, it says, all liars. There is something about lying that God particularly hates. And I think it's because God is absolutely about the truth. I've always loved a verse which my mentor used to quote, 2 Corinthians 13, 8, where Paul simply says, we can do nothing against the truth, only for the truth. Something about that, that word truth, when I want to shade the truth or I want to lie, I think about truth and how I can do nothing against it. It will stand when everything else falls. And it then gives me that courage to tell the truth. Yeah, I did that. No, I didn't do that. And it's, it's so helpful. Now, he goes on to say in this, and I think you'll agree, this is really practical, down, dirty stuff. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old man, the old Adamic nature with its practices, and you have put on the new self. That's the Christ in you. That's the, the brand new heart, the new nature, the new creation that Paul speaks of. You put on the new self. And notice how Paul says the new self operates. The new man, the new you inside, is being renewed. That's a present tense word. Is being renewed in knowledge, number one, after the image of God, number two. Fancy way of saying that as you study, as you feed that new man and you grow in knowledge, what happens is you grow into the image of your creator. Study to become more like God. That's what happens when you study. You study your creator, you become more like him. The true knowledge and the image of the creator, a great incentive for you to grow in knowledge. And then uh, he talks about, in verse 11, a glorious unity among four very different pairs of people that happens when we walk in the way that we're supposed to in Colossians 3, the first 10 verses. I, probably one of the things I love most about the body of Christ is you might sit down in a pew or a chair next to somebody so opposite from you that you might never bump into and certainly not hang out with, except you're both born again, washed in Christ people. Here are, here are some different ones that would never hang out outside of the fact they are now 
brethren in Christ. Here in this place in God, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free. But Christ, now watch this, Christ is all and in all. So in all these people mentioned, Christ is all. He's what we have. He's our prize. We've been working on in the first four verses, looking up to him and, and letting him be our life. Christ is all and in all. So when I sit down and I'm a Jew and I'm sitting next to a Greek or I'm circumcised and I sit next to an uncircumcised person, a Jew or a Gentile, if I'm a barbarian and I sit down next to a Scythian, I'll explain that. If I'm a slave sitting next to a free man, we do not have to have those barriers divide us because we are all. Christ is all and he's in all. So this thing of Greek and Jew, we're pretty well familiar uh, with the Jewish mindset they were the seed of Abraham. They were covenant people. They loved the law of God. They walked in all the rituals of God. But then there was the Greeks. And the Jews of this time lived in a Greek-dominated culture. So for a Jew, the worldview was theistic, that God created all of this, and we serve this God who is our creator. But to the, to the Greek, no way. They had a humanistic worldview. It's all about man. And it was a, a search of knowledge or strength or power or being an Olympian to, to become the perfect man. The Jew would have nothing to do with that. A theist <laughs> sitting next to a humanist. But Paul says, but those two now are in Christ. And there's that's not their ultimate identity. Your ultimate identity is not Greek or Jew. Your ultimate identity is Christ in me. Or what about the circumcised and uncircumcised? Now that again, a circumcised person, a man would be a Jew and uncircumcised would be everybody else in the planet. So in one sense, it was the Jews against the world, Jews against everybody else. And so here you are, you've come to Christ, you plop down, in a service, or you're sitting in a service, or you're in a home, most likely, in this era, and who sits down right next to you, or who stands up to speak, or whatever, but someone who's not a Jew. They're not circumcised. They're not obeying the law of Moses. But that's not their main identity. We are now joined together because we are both in Christ. And thirdly, the barbarians and Scythians. This is a great one. The, uh, bar the, the barbers of the barbarians were kind of a robber tribe, a gang that lived in the uh, Caucasus region, southern Russia. And uh, they would periodically come down and raid other countries. And they were, they were barbarians as we now think of them. But the Scythians were the worst of them. They were the ones who were the most vicious, would peel your skin off alive and so on. And what happens in church if there's a barbarian and then a Scythian sits next to him. Well, that would be like being someone from their Nortenios sit down with someone from the Sorenos, if you're from around here. 
And Paul has the, uh, the vision to say, uh-uh, that's not your top identity anymore. You are now brothers and sisters, and you have to get along. That is wild. And I can tell you, when I got saved, I found myself sitting in people that were so different than I was, and it was the best thing that could have happened. Slave and free. Context is the Roman Empire. Ninety plus percent of the people in the Roman Empire were slaves who had very little rights, very difficult lives, and they were in bondage. And Paul makes the case otherwise, other places, that they, if they're slaves and become Christians, they have become free. But a master who becomes a Christian becomes a slave to God. Master and slave sit together. They're both in Christ. Christ is in both of them. And here we have this potential unity where the church can be a melting pot. It could be a family with radically different kinds of people. Here are four examples. Beautiful. Glorious unity among all these people. The new man, see, can love all. That new person within you, you've had a prejudice against this kind of person or that kind of person, or you don't like people from the South or people from the West, or you don't like whatever. But see, in Christ, the new nature can love the people that you have had a prejudice toward. That's why in the church, love should flow and a completely Different bunch of people should be shaken up, put together, and then learn to get along. That's what he's talking about. So he says, put on then. Now, he's, he's spent some time, 12 different things he has said, put off. Wonderful thing about Christianity, it doesn't just say don't do, but it says now you may do. And it's what you put on then that counts. And there are a, a series of eight beautiful attributes that as Christ works in us that we can put on. He says in verse 12, and I love the way he speaks to the church and speaks to us, put on then like a coat, put on then as God's, notice these three things, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's the word of the Lord to you today. Chosen, holy, beloved. No one may have ever loved you the way you need to be loved, but you've never been loved till you've been loved by God. Maybe you've never experienced holiness, which simply means separation, not acting religious and judging other people, but simply being saying to God, I'm set apart for you. I'm all for you. Everything else is secondary, Lord. You are primary. And it's all because God chose you. I know for me, the night I got saved and I went to a home Bible study, I wasn't looking for God. I wasn't hungry for God. I figured I knew God already. And I got in that room and I realized I didn't know anything. And that night, before I made the choice of him, I could sense the choice of God of me drawing me inexorably to him look at that chosen holy and beloved whether we feel like that or not 
That's who we are. So he says, because you are those things, chosen, holy, and beloved, put on these things. This is now what you should look like. Look at this beautiful list. Number one, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. And verse 14, typical of Paul to put the the best for last. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I'm sure I've said it a million times, but the night I got saved, there was something in that living room. I'd never been in a Bible study before. I'd never opened a Bible and read it before. But there was something thick in that room, in the atmosphere. I, I couldn't understand what it was. It just felt so, so weird. It was, it was to, to say what we would say in those days, it was trippy. It was just wild. And then I realized, as I looked in, around, I looked in everybody's faces, I realized what was in the air was love. And I don't think I had ever experienced love, though I was raised in a wonderful home, love like that. You've never been loved till you've been loved by God. And so let's look at these things. Compassionate hearts. It's a Greek word that I cannot pronounce, but it actually would be best translated guts. It refers to not just the heart, but, but your digestive system, your guts. Put on a heart that in its uh, deepest place is compassionate. Many of us lack compassion. Many of us don't look at the suffering of people around us or even just the people around us, period, because we're locked in self. And so he says, well, the first thing is in your guts, be moved by the suffering of people. And so in, in my life and working with foster kids and working with abused people and working with uh, demonically tormented people and so on, I've had to develop a compassionate heart because sometimes when you deal with people who need compassion, it can be difficult. Ruin your, your, your day, tear up your schedule. But the first thing I just think it's beautiful, compassionate hearts and then number two, kindness. I don't have a better way to say kindness than kindness. Where has kindness gone? Where has a sensitive, gentle touch toward other people gone? And even in Monterey, how people drive and people are just cutting in front of me and stuff. Every day I, I come to work and I get out on 68 Highway. It's like a racetrack. But kindness says, please go ahead of me. Please have this before me. Kindness. And if you're, not, if, you're, if you're a harsh person, which is the opposite of kindness, you can ask the Lord, Lord, take away that harshness. Help me to be kind. And thirdly, humility. One of the great attributes of Christians, the Greek word tapinas simply means a valley. A humble person is someone who is very content to be in the low spots. A person who doesn't have to be king of the mountain, but a person who is very happy in the valley. And if you've been out in the country long enough, you know that in the valleys are 
shade, water, not a bad place to be. Humility it is a hard one to define, but it means that you, in your own mind, you're not the mountain, you're the valley. And however you can assist others, you do so. And of course, humility in the kingdom of God, if you humble yourself, you will always be exalted. God's greatest gifts are on the lowest shelves. If you're willing to stoop down and take up the lower gifts of God, you find yourself promoted by God. And if you promote yourself, you have to continually do it. But if God promotes you, it's up to him how things go with you. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and meekness. Meekness is a beautiful word. It just means being teachable. You never say, I knew that. You sit down in front of anyone who has anything to say, and you welcome it. And whether you learn anything or not is really immaterial because you simply want to be teachable. And then the fifth thing is patience. <laughs> it's a Greek word that actually means having a long, a long fuse would be a good way to put it. It means that you don't easily explode. Patience. And he, he's going to say it in, in another way. Bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. How important it is to be around people that really bug you and just bear with them. So what if they're this? So what if they're that? He says, bearing with one another, and it gets worse, bearing with one another. And if you have a complaint, and I can tell you I have a weakness at times, not so much speaking them, but in my mind, complaining about people and thinking, you know, they really could do, use some of this. They could use some of that. And I was even as I read and studied for this, that word complaint just just slapped me. Jeff, you complain about people. You complain, period. What you're supposed to be doing is bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. Oh, the the power we have to forgive. It's unlike other creatures on this, this earth. Forgiving. I actually see a, a progression here. Bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and then, as I said uh, earlier, loving one another. That's the way that works. The way you climb up to the place of love is bearing with, forgiving, and then you just find yourself Loving people that you never thought that you would. Enjoying people you never thought that you would. People are the best thing. Observing people, seeing how people are all different, seeing how God has, has made each person with a unique contribution, you only see that stuff when you love them and you bear with them and you forgive them. Now, 15, 16, and 17, then, in Paul's logical thinking, talk about the atmosphere that this, these attitudes produce. So look at this carefully. We've just looked at putting on these eight things. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with, forgiving, and love. That produces something in your family, in your small group, in your church, 
in your community, in your neighborhood. He says, above all these things in verse 14, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. There will not be harmony without love. But 15, he's going to say three successive things. He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Peace is such an important thing. And to me, I don't have peace outside of the peace that Christ puts in me. Because I'm always thinking of something I should have done or could have done or whatever. But he says, now, out of love, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Christ knows how to bring peace to your heart. He knows how to settle you, enable you to sit and be quiet. And peaceful people are such a, a gas to be around. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body. Where there's oneness in the body, it's because there's peace. And peace is there because of love and the other qualifications. But that 15th verse is, a, is like a vibe. It's like an atmosphere. The peace of Christ ruling in your hearts. You are called to this in one body and be thankful. Now you're going to be interesting. In verse 15, it says, be thankful. Verse 16, it says, sing with thankfulness. And verse 17 says, giving thanks. And I find that it occurs in all three of these atmospheres. Maybe you're like me, that you need to cultivate thankfulness. I find myself reminded by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, so often about thanksgiving. Thanking God for me, that I live in the place I always wanted to live. And, and I love the trees. I love the birds. I love the weather, the topography, the people. But in whatever it is that's happening inside you, Thanksgiving is always so appropriate and it's great for your mental health. So he says, let the peace of Christ rule and be thankful. So that's a unified atmosphere. Then verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What produces this singing and melody and joy, he says here, is the word of Christ. First, we saw a unified atmosphere. Here, there's a studious atmosphere. There are people that want the word of Christ to dwell in them. It's not that they're always carrying a Bible. It's that the word of Christ is working in them. And it comes out with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs and thanksgiving. No substitute for the word of Christ dwelling in you. Peace of Christ, unity. Word of Christ being studious. And an atmosphere of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then in 17. Hmm, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus famous. Bringing Jesus into everything we do, again, giving thanks to God the Father through him. My summary there is a diligent atmosphere. 
unified, studious, and diligent. I was the least diligent person before I got saved. I shirked work. <laughs> I ran away from work. I hid from work. I never stayed after school and, and did any committee work or anything like that. But I learned whatever I do in word or deed, I call God into it. I really do. I, I through the day, I say, Lord, I need help here. Please, I don't know what to do. Please help me. I'm, I'm tired. Please, whatever you do in word or deed, do it to advertise by your diligence and excellence that Christ is your Lord. And again, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Finally, we have, he's graduated to the point where he's going to get even more specific. So we've seen the put off, put to death, and the put on. And now he simply is going to talk about spirit-filled behavior. And this majors in family and business life. And I would tell you, all of us need instructions in, in family and we need instruction in business. I know I do. And so I'm going to read through this passage, follow along, and then I'll go back and try to summarize it. Wives, submit to your husbands. This is a replica of Ephesians chapter 5, of course. Wives, submit to your husbands. Why? As is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be, careful, harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, very important verse. Ephesians 6, 4 is a perfect cross-reference to it. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Did you notice that husbands and fathers may tend to be harsh, and they may provoke to discouragement? Bond servants, which is the lowest form of a slave, obey in everything. Ouch. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity. The Greek says with singleness of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not from men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're, as the lowest slave, who brings God into that menial or painful labor, you will receive a specific reward because you are serving the Lord Christ. And the wrongdoers will be paid back for the wrong they have done without partiality. The people that mistreated slaves all through the years, the middle passage and all that, will get their reward. But notice, wise don't naturally submit to their husbands. It's fitting that they do, and I don't have time to defend that whole thing, but wives often don't submit to their husbands, and husbands often do not love their wives, but they tend to be harsh. So now, what I see here is the wisdom of God in Paul. What is the thing that men crave the most? It is, in my judgment, respect. What is the thing that women crave the most? In my experience, it's love. And notice how the Holy Spirit through Paul says, wives, through a submissive attitude, you will 
pull love out of your husband. Husbands, with a loving, sacrificial, non-harsh attitude, if you love, you will pull respect out of your wife. It's the whole theme of Dr. Egerich's book, Love and Respect. Wives don't submit, husbands don't love, unless they're taught by God to do so. And notice, a wife is taught, study your husband, figure out what respect means to him, figure out what submission can do to pull love out of him, follow his leadership, and you'll pull out of him what you need. Given and shall be given to you. Husbands, your wife craves love. You need to study your husband, your, study your wife, and figure out what does love look like to, to my wife and give that. Not the way you want to be loved, but the way she needs to be loved. With a woman, love involves, I, I need your, your attention. I need your thought. I need your protection. I need you to be all about me. And Paul is so wise here in just giving instructions. Wives, don't naturally submit, but when they do, they get back what they need, and that's love. Husbands don't always naturally love, and they can be really harsh. But if they don't, they will draw respect out of that wife. Verse 20, everyone knows this. Children love to disobey. Children just love to disobey. Uh, you know why? Because children want to be in charge. Children love and crave autonomy. Men crave respect. Women love, but children, they want to be in charge. <laughs> I have one particular grandchild, whom I will not name, that just loves to get his mom's goat, just loves to make her cry, just loves to give her a hard time. Children love to disobey. And notice we're told, obey your parents in everything. This pleases the Lord. Until a child has, when they, especially when they get a little bit older, seven, eight, nine, until they get some kind of idea that this really um, is in their own best interest and pleases God, they tend to just really love to rattle the cage because children don't naturally obey. But Paul is saying, be taught by God, children. If you can learn to obey, it pleases the Lord. Now, fathers on the other side, fathers tend to provoke. The, uh, the word here, uh, provoke, means to uh, rouse to strife. The way many fathers slam around the home, kind of just do what they feel like, keep their own schedule, are not living a sacrificial life. I guess I'll put it this way. Children crave peaceful leadership, peaceful leadership. Children need a father who is at peace in his leadership. He's got a vision. He's calm, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't take it personally when the children don't obey. He's peaceful and he leads. Children don't tend to obey but I'm, I'm for sure, if you provoke them to anger, you rouse them to strife, you create wrath in them, Ephesians 6.4, it's because it's a ref, it may be a reflection of your own lack of peaceful 
leadership in the home. The most important part of a man's day is his drive home or his walk home. And when he comes in that door, he needs to take off the hat of the world, the hat of his job, and to put on the dad cap. Come in, find out what's happening in the day. Don't grind the gears. Get in sync with what's happening and peacefully lead. Fathers tend to provoke. Bond servants tend not to obey. And he mentions here, eye service and people pleasers instead of fearing the Lord. Man, I've been a supervisor. I have overseen people and I have known people who were such, they, they did eye service. As long as I was looking, they worked hard. But they were also people pleasers. Trying to, uh, trying to look busy. Here comes the pastor, look busy. How many times I've heard that. But instead, he says, have singleness of heart and fear God. Because God is always watching me when I work. Bond servants tend not to obey. You just have to know that. Bond servants tend not to obey. All of us tend to just do what we kind of can get away with unless we're taught by God. That realm of diligence. He says, you are serving the Lord Christ. You will get a reward from him. And all of us will stand before the Lord. We'll give an account for how we've done and we will receive a reward from him. And Paul is talking to real slaves, real masters, and people whose lives were very difficult. And he promises the wrongdoer that's mistreated you in your life, employees, the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there will be no partiality. There's going to be no boss that's going to be treated with partiality, but will be evaluated by God. I won't see too much about uh, chapter 4, verse 1, though it's part of the same thought. Uh, but I'm going to get into that some next week. But notice, he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Speaking of master, I think that this whole passage is a masterpiece. It's so practical for then as well as now. And so I think you're the kind of person that wants to look up. I think you want to put off and put to death and you want to put on the right stuff. And you want to pursue the right relationships that he talks with at the end. So what I'm going to do as we close Tuesday night Bible study is I'm going to pray for you. Those four simple things that you will be a person who looks up and is heavenly minded that you are a person who will put to death and put off those 12 negative things that we can fall prey to. And he's writing to Christians that you'll be the person that will put on these beautiful things that he mentions of compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Oh, my heart melts when I read those and the kind of atmosphere that it produces in the church. I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for those that are hearing this online. And I want to thank you, Lord, that we have come to this wonderful chapter. Thank you that you tell us to look up. Thank you that you tell us to have minds on the things of heaven and not on earth. We have to be taught that, Lord. I have to be taught that to be a person whose first instinct every day and through the day is 
to look up to you. And Lord, putting off, putting to death, that can be so painful. There, there are some of these things here, uh, wrath, immorality, impurity, idolatry, that can be so difficult. But as we've read this passage and you've pushed buttons inside us, Lord, we present those things to you and pray, help us to put them off and help us to put on, Lord, the replacements which are so much more pleasant and so much more of a blessing. And above all, to put on love so Christ can rule in our hearts in peace. And teach us, Lord, right relationships. We who are wives, we who are husbands, we who are fathers, we who are employees and employers, we want to pursue right relationships in the fulfillment of our responsibilities. Just as the first century people were taught, we hear these words, we say, Holy Spirit, apply them to us, change us, and we pray in Jesus' name for Jesus' sake. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for studying with me, and I'll see you again next week for Colossians chapter 4, after which our pastor will be back. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.